Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The lead starts right now. Today, President Biden visiting the site of the racist massacre in Buffalo, New York, as we're learning troubling new details about the alleged gunman's plot. Plus... Don't get high on your own supply of propaganda. A warning from a former senior Russian officer on state TV in Russia. And it is election night in America. Voting happening right now in several key states, including the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, where the Republican Senate race is a true nail-biter. We're now learning one candidate in these races is about to get a pacemaker implanted. Good afternoon. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We start with our national lead and President Biden this afternoon in Buffalo trying to comfort those who suffered the most from Saturday's attack at a supermarket targeted because it's in a predominantly black neighborhood, the work of a racist domestic terrorist killing 10 innocent people, police say. The president spending time today with grief-stricken families, emergency first responders, and community leaders. It was An emotional day, but also one that included a call to action with the president urging Americans to reject racist ideologies. Jill and I bring you this message from deep in our nation's soul. In America, evil will not win, I promise you. Hate will not prevail. And white supremacy will not have the last word. White supremacy is a poison. It's a poison. This comes as we're learning new details about the investigation and just how much planning went into the racist attack. We now know it was months in the making with the suspect visiting the store three different times at least one day back in March. At one point, he was approached by a security guard. In one social media post, the alleged gunman wrote at the time, I'm going to have to kill that security guard at tops. I hope he doesn't kill me or even hurt me instantly. We're also learning that the killer considered attacking a church or an elementary school. Brian Todd has our national lead now from Binghamton, New York, not far from where the shooting suspect lived in Conklin. And Brian, you've been digging into the suspect's past and you've been talking to people who know him. Tell us what you're learning. Right, Jake. We've got new details this afternoon about the suspect's behavior in high school from those who knew him then, plus new information on the investigation from the local DA in his home county here in Broome County, New York, on the day that President Biden touched down in Buffalo. The president and first lady getting a face-to-face look at the grief and shock in Buffalo. What happened here is simple and straightforward. Terrorism. Terrorism. Domestic terrorism. Their visit comes as new details emerge about the accused gunman. Social media posts detail Peyton Gendron's interaction with investigators in June of 2021, following an ominous reference to murder-suicide. He made the threat while attending Susquehanna Valley High School in Conklin, New York. We spoke to the district attorney of his home county about that. On an online class, he said to a teacher that he was contemplating a murder-suicide. The uh, teacher followed up on that 
and the suspect indicated that he was just kidding. In a post, Genron writes he was sent to the hospital for a mental evaluation, but it only lasted 15 minutes. Quote, because I stuck with the story that I was getting out of class and I just stupidly wrote that down. That is the reason I believe I am still able to purchase guns. It was not a joke. I wrote that down because that's what I was planning to do. Despite this incident, Gendron was allowed to buy firearms under federal law. The DA says it's hard to tell if he fell through the cracks. The school went through their protocol and called the police, got the state police involved. The New York State Police uh, spoke with him transported him to a local hospital for a psychiatric evaluation. Uh, he was cleared and uh, released. Gendron put out a 180-page statement detailing a trove of firearms he had, including an illegally modified military-style rifle he allegedly used in Saturday's attack, and a rifle he says his father bought for him. The document says he planned to use the rifle and a shotgun to continue targeting black people elsewhere in Buffalo if he wasn't stopped at the supermarket. I'm blaming everyone um, for this happening and continuing to happen to our communities. Police say the gunman shot four people in the parking lot, exchanged gunfire with a security guard, and shot more people in the store before surrendering. Tonight, we're also hearing more from Gendron's former classmates, many calling him a loner. He gave me a weird feeling in my stomach for some reason. I don't know why. I mean, he was nice, but he was just really shy. Did you sense that he might have been racist, or did you sense that he was just maybe odd, strange, or creepy? Uh, odd, odd, mostly weird sometimes. I mean, I don't like to judge people, but that's the impression I got of him. Was it his manner of speaking or the things that he said that gave you that impression? Um, he didn't make eye contact with me when I talked. He, like, looked around. That district attorney for Broome County, where we're standing, uh, would not comment when I asked him if the suspect's parents could be charged in this case, but he did say they are investigating the suspect's relationship with his family, with his teachers, and with other students. And he also said, Jake, that the family is being cooperative in this investigation. Jake. All right, Brian Todd in New York for us. Thanks so much. I want to go now to Reverend Denise Walden Glenn. She knows all of the victims' families and had the awful task along with the police department of informing the families on Saturday night about the loss of their loved ones. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, let's start with President Biden's visit today. Uh, I know a lot of the families met privately with the president. You've spent the day with the families too. Um, what did the president's visit mean to the families and to the larger community? Right now, I think that our community is just really in a place of hurting. I think that, um, it was good of the president to show up, but I think that the question in people's mind was, where are we in understanding the crisis and the state of emergency that we're, our, we're currently in in our city? And why does it seem like on some ends that we're in a state of emergency, but yet people are still expected to return to work, students are expected to return to school, and it's kind of almost feeling like on some ends no one is really acknowledging um, the horrific act that has happened and what it's done to this community on the ground. So I think that people um, appreciate that he's here, but it's kind of like the now what and what does that mean for us and what does that mean for how um, the community is going to be cared for now that he's been here and seen things firsthand. What do you think uh, the city should do? You think that school should be delayed a week? You think uh, it work? there should just be no work this week? What, what, what do people need in your view? 
I think that we need to treat this the way we would treat any other true crisis in our country and declare that we're in a state of emergency in Buffalo and give our families, give our community members, give the people who care for us time to truly wrap our minds around what just happened to us. People have not been able to process. People are sharing, including myself, that we are numb and in autopilot and just moving, trying to salvage what we feel is left of our lives right now in our community that we call home when truly we feel ripped apart. Um, And right now there just seems to be a lot of things moving and happening in our cities, but we're not getting the opportunity that we need to really process and take hold of what happened and figure out where we need to go from here and how do we start our own healing process. I know you live right around the corner from Topps Supermarket, um, which is an important place for the community. It's the only full-service grocery store in the neighborhood. Residents had to fight for years to get it built. Uh, Many residents have also told us how it was a social hub for the community. Now, of course, it's closed. Um, That has also got to be tough. I mean, that's more than tough. And again, like, even to hear that, to hear that it's the only supermarket in our area, it goes to speaking about the level, how this is historic trauma, right? Like, historically, Buffalo is one of the most segregated cities in our nation. We've been fighting anti-blackness in our city and across our nation for a very long time. And these things have not been addressed. And then we're doing something like sitting in the middle of a pandemic where people have already suffered so much loss and are still trying to wrap their minds around that grief. And now we've seen such a heinous act of racism and hate come against our community in a way that has violently violated us. And then, yes, we think about the disparities. We think about our lack of food access, our lack of access to transportation, our lack of access to mental health services and the deficit that we're operating at. And again, we have to say, how are people seeing where we really are in this moment and allowing us to vocalize what it is we need and give giving us the time that is needed to heal, right? How is our district coming up with comprehensive ways of supporting our students before telling them to come back into the building? How are they supporting the teachers that are caring for the students as they come back in the building and the administrators that are caring for the teachers? And so this is a multi-layered issue and it's going to take time to put those things together and figure out. But the biggest thing is focusing on the people who have been closest to this act of terrorism that happened in our community. The people who are closest to this pain and what they need in this moment and what they need is not to be asked to return to life as normal because there's nothing normal about the lives in Maston District in Buffalo, New York right now. Reverend Walden Glenn, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate it. Coming up next, it's Election Day in America. Five states holding primaries today, including the key Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, where we are just learning that the top Democratic candidate for Senate, according to polls, is about to get a pacemaker installed. Plus, shocking criticism from a former Russian colonel appearing on Russian state TV. He warns things are likely going to get worse for Russia. Former CIA Director David Petraeus is my my guest. We have breaking news for you in our politics lead. We are just learning that Pennsylvania Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman, who is the Democratic frontrunner, for the open Senate seat in the primary, is about to undergo a procedure to implant a pacemaker. Fetterman has been in the hospital since Friday after suffering what he described as a minor stroke. On the Republican side of the race, there's been a tight race between conservative commentator Kathy Barnett, former hedge fund manager David McCormick, and TV doctor Mehmet Oz. Let's bring in CNN's Jeff Zeleny, who's in Newton, Pennsylvania, outside Dr. Oz's campaign headquarters. And Jeff, uh, first, this is some pretty major news from the Fetterman campaign. What more are you learning about the lieutenant governor's condition? 
Jake, it is definitely major news. Uh, the lieutenant governor, John Fetterman, he, of course, is running for the uh, Democratic nomination uh, for the U.S. Senate seat here, has been in the hospital, as you said, since Friday in Lancaster. He was uh, headed to a campaign event. His wife noticed something wrong in his speech. He has been in uh, the hospital since Friday. We were just learning just a short time ago that his campaign said he is going to undergo a procedure. Let's look at the statement that uh, they are releasing. Very scant information. It says John Fetterman is about to undergo a standard procedure to implant a pacemaker with a defibrillator. It should be a short procedure, the campaign says, that will help protect his heart and address the underlying cause of his stroke, atrial defibrillation, by regulating his heart rate and rhythm. So that is something that is going to be happening uh, shortly, as voting is still underway here in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, a little bit less than four hours or so of voting. And he is still widely considered to be in the lead in the Democratic side of this uh, of the Senate uh, contest here. He is running against two other candidates who have largely uh, been campaigning as this has all been going on. Uh, but uh, John Fetterman has been uh, absent from the campaign trail. His ads are running on television. His wife has been urging voters to go to the polls today. But Jake, it certainly raises questions about him. He's a 52-year-old lieutenant governor of the state here who has been uh, you know, a popular figure in Democratic circles and is still widely considered to uh, be the front runner and indeed likely win this evening. But of course, that raises questions about his health going forward in the general election campaign. Yeah, we're going to talk to a cardiologist in a second about uh, Lieutenant Governor uh, Fetterman. But let's talk about the Republican race now, because Kathy Barnett, her quick rise uh, has some Republicans worry, worried that, that she is too unknown, too risky to win a general election. They argue she has not been properly vetted. And of course, it is just a matter of record that she's trafficked in lies about the 2020 election, as well as anti-gay and anti-Muslim bigotry. What's the energy like inside her campaign today? The energy is pretty strong, Jake, and it is in part because of those the lies that you were talking about. Her candidacy has indeed been propelled by the questions about the a legitimacy of the 2020 election, which of course are unfounded. But that is how she came to prominence inside the party, and that is what has drawn a lot of the party's base behind her. Now, it is a bit of uh, um, an ironic twist, if you will, that now former President Donald Trump is leading the charge, questioning her ability to be elected in a general election. He called into a rally for the candidate he's endorsed and supporting, Dr. Mabadaz, just last evening, saying she would be a risky choice, saying she has not been vetted. He used the word catastrophe if she would happen to win. But that is what is uh, the current state of the Trump Republican Party, if you will, Jake, that this is exactly what has catapulted her to near the front of the pack. Now, there is a question um, if she has peaked too soon here or not. You cannot go really more than a few moments without watching a negative ad against her from either the Oz campaign or David McCormick's campaign saying she is simply too risky of a choice. But, Jake, only the voters will know the answer to that. So in the final less than four hours or so, uh, Barnett supporters are energized. Other Republicans here, at least some of them, are concerned. Jake. All right, Jeff, Jeff Zeleny in Pennsylvania for us. Thanks so much. Uh, let's bring in CNN medical analyst Dr. Jonathan Reiner, who was the longtime cardiologist for former Vice President Dick Cheney, who also had a pacemaker implanted on Reiner's orders. Uh, so Dr. Reiner, Fetterman's campaign just announced that he's going to be undergoing surgery to implant a pacemaker. We were told, uh, I think it was uh, yesterday uh, from his campaign, uh, that he'd had a minor stroke on Friday. Uh, how serious is this, do you think? Well, hi, Jake. Well, let, let's unpack this. Well, first of all, wishing uh, uh, Lieutenant Governor Fetterman uh, very well and a speedy recovery. 
So we know that he had a stroke, likely as a result of atrial fibrillation. Atrial fibrillation is an irregular rhythm that affects the atrial chambers, sort of the top chambers of the heart. And when those chambers sort of quiver and don't beat in concert with the ventricles, the lower chambers, blood can pool in the heart. And if blood pools in the heart, it can clot. And if a clot gets out of the heart, it can cause a stroke. And it sounds like that's what happened to the lieutenant governor. Atrial fibrillation can happen in people who have basically normal hearts, and it can happen in people who have damaged hearts. The news today that Lieutenant Governor Fetterman is receiving a defibrillator, not just a simple pacemaker, but a defibrillator, uh, raises concerns about the uh, underlying cause of uh, his atrial fibrillation, and it suggests that his heart muscle is, is weak. P people who have had uh, heart attacks in the past or who have what we call cardiomyopathies, diseases that weaken the heart muscle, uh, can actually have atrial fibrillation and the uh, association between placing this uh, device now and his uh, recent stroke suggests perhaps that his heart disease is uh, unfortunately a bit more extensive than has been uh, disclosed. Well, they described it in the statement uh, as he's about to undergo a standard procedure to implant a pacemaker with a defibrillator. Is it a standard procedure? No, that's incorrect. Uh, Atrial fibrillation is exceedingly common. About 1% to 2% of the American population probably has AFib. That's about 3 to 6 million uh, people in, the, in this country. Uh, and it is uh, sometimes treated by a, a brief electrical shock under sedation to correct the rhythm. It's sometimes treated with drugs. It's very frequently and most commonly treated with a blood thinner. But the placement of a defibrillator, uh, I have one here in my hand. This is what it basically is, and it gets implanted under the skin under the, cavi uh, under the clavicle connected to the heart via wires. This is reserved really for people who have a significant impairment in their heart function, or it's sometimes placed in people who have had or demonstrated to have uh, a more uh, ominous kind of uh, heart rhythm. Uh, so my suggestion is unfortunately, uh, uh, Mr. Fetterman's heart disease is a bit more uh, extensive. That doesn't mean he can't recover and won't recover. The videos show him Look, looking quite well, but this does show that he has uh, established heart disease. As you, as you say, and we all uh, echo it, uh, we wish uh, Lieutenant Governor Fetterman and his wife and family all, all the best in his recovery. Dr. Jonathan Reiner, thank you so much. Joining us now is David Chalian. He's the CNN political director. Uh, David, this is uh, big news of Fetterman undergoing the surgery to implant a, a pacemaker. Does this, do you think, affect the race? I mean, the answer is we don't really know. We're going to see tonight. We know that Fetterman had a big lead in this race, according to the vast majority of the polls, Jake, heading into tonight. Um, but we'll see if this scrambled in any way. Talking to Democrats in Pennsylvania, there has not been a sense that there's been dramatic movement in the race uh, because of these last few days of him being sort of sidelined in the hospital. I will say, listening to Dr. Reiner right now, it does seem incumbent upon the campaign and the candidate to share a lot more information with the public, especially if he does win tonight and is the nominee. They were rather opaque about this uh, over the weekend, didn't even reveal that he had the stroke until Sunday, just after canceling events, saying he wasn't feeling well. So as a nominee, if he does win tonight, Jake, I think it's going to be incumbent upon him to sort of uh, share as much information as possible with the voters of Pennsylvania. Uh, David, uh, in the Republican Senate primary in Pennsylvania, we have uh, Dr. Mehmet Oz, David McCormick, Kathy Burnett, they're in a tight race. Yesterday, former President Trump, in an interview with the Washington Post, reiterated his endorsement of Oz. He said this of Barnett, quote, people don't know her. She hasn't been properly vetted. She ran for Congress fairly recently, and she lost about 
by about 20 points, unquote. I have to say, in a lot of ways, and you heard Jeff talk about like Trump's big election lie as one of the things fueling Barnett's campaign, but beyond that, Barnett, to me, seems the more authentically Trumpy candidate between the three of them in, in a lot of ways, uh, positive ways and negative ways. What do you think? Yeah, well, there's no doubt that the base of her support is carved out uh, from that sort of MAGA wing of the Republican Party that Trump uh, gave birth to, Jake. There's, you are absolutely uh, right. She is authentically that. What I find so uh, interesting about the former president's statement there, of course, he's trying to uh, keep voters on board with his chosen candidate, Mehmet Oz. He wants to score a victory here uh, through that endorsement as well. But I wonder if indeed Barnett uh, wins uh, the primary tonight in this three-way contest. Now, you know, does Trump sort of ignore everything he just said in the last 24, 48 hours about her and, and gets behind her candidacy for the fall? One would imagine he probably would like to do that. Yeah, and it wouldn't be the first time he had done something like that. David Jallion, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Top Pentagon officials are telling lawmakers today there have been close to 400 reports from military personnel of possible encounters with unidentified flying objects. What does the former head of the CIA think of that? Well, we'll ask him next. In tonight's World Lead, a sign that Russia may be extending the range of its attacks in the war with Ukraine. And I must warn you, the videos may be disturbing. Crews racing to care for a nine-year-old child seriously injured in a missile strike in Donetsk. At least one person was also killed. Officials say the strike also destroyed a five-story building and damaged a school in Donetsk. The town serves as a crucial hub for Ukraine's military. And a hospital there treats wounded soldiers. This is CNN gets an exclusive close-up look at what may be one of the biggest single defeats for the Russian military, finding destroyed Russian military vehicles littered across a field in Bilohovrivka in eastern Ukraine, as well as the charred remains of Russian soldiers killed in the clashes last week. With me now, retired four-star U.S. Army General and former CIA Director David Petraeus. He's also the chairman of the KKR Global Institute, which does own some defense contracting firms, but we know General Petraeus does not work with those firms. General, a few weeks ago, you told me you thought the war was entering a pivotal moment and that Ukraine would start to counterattack and take back ground it lost. You, you just saw the aftermath of this major defeat for Russia. An official in Kharkiv also says Ukrainian counterattacks are making advances there. Do you think Ukraine could actually end up winning this war? Well, it depends on your definition of winning. Uh, obviously, it would also include extraordinary destruction, loss of life, and uh, damage to civilian infrastructure, as we've seen repeatedly. Um, in that said, it is by no means certain. Uh, but the prediction, if you will, that there would be a counteroffensive uh, has proven uh, correct. They did indeed push back at Russian forces outside the second largest city in Ukraine, Kharkiv, in the east. Uh, they've driven some of those forces all the way back across the Russian border, uh, and they're certainly out of artillery range of Kharkiv. So I think you can now add the Battle of Kharkiv to the battles of Kiev, Chernihiv, and Sumy as ones that Ukraine has won. Uh, the question is whether the enormous amount of additional arms, ammunition, and other military supplies can get to the front lines and help the Ukrainian forces really tip the balance uh, against Russia. It appears that that is happening in some locations. Again, Kharkiv being one of those, that other area where you note that horrific disaster of the Russian forces trying to get across a river that were ambushed uh, and just obliterated, really, a better part of an entire 
uh, battalion tactical group destroyed there, as well as the pontoons that were going to be the bridges and so forth. Yeah. But whether Ukraine can continue uh, to conduct counteroffensives and essentially roll up flanks of the Russian forces, I think does remain uh, to be to be answered. Uh, and the the Russians are trying to harden the front lines of the areas that they have seized, and we should acknowledge again that they have obviously expanded very considerably from Crimea and the area in the southeastern part of the country that their separatists support uh, controlled. Uh, they've expanded those quite considerably, uh, yeah. and they're now trying to establish defenses along those front lines. In the weeks ahead, we'll find out whether the Ukrainian forces can make great use of these extraordinary weapon systems and, and amounts of ammunition, over 200,000 rounds of 155 millimeter howitzer ammunition alone just from the United States. So, General, this comes as we hear the stunning criticism of Russia's invasion from an unlikely source, a former, former Russian colonel appearing on Russian state TV last night. He warned that things will get worse for Russia. He also seemed to call out his own government's propaganda. Take a listen. I must say, let's not drink information tranquilizers, because sometimes information is spread about hearing some moral or psychological breakdown of Ukraine's armed forces, as if they are nearing a crisis of morale or a fracture. None of this is close to reality. That's pretty surprising to me. Are, are, are you as surprised as I am? Well, I am, although there have also been reports of military bloggers uh, in Ukraine who have also been critical, especially, by the way, of that really uh, mismanaged bridge crossing operation. Uh, and I suspect that that colonel's uh, appearances will be constrained from here on out. Um, but clearly there are cracks, if you will, in the, uh, in the information wall that Vladimir Putin has established, uh, given the government control of the traditional media of television and newspapers. And gradually, this kind of information is going to make its way to the general population. Presumably, this is why President Putin did not decide to mobilize the country, uh, as was thought that he might declare uh, in the Victory Day speech uh, on World War II that was conducted in Moscow. Uh, he shrank from that, uh, and presumably it's because he fears the domestic uh, loss of support that could result from it. So, again, it does demonstrate the fragility to a degree that Putin seems to realize uh, he, he finds himself in at this point in time. And it also might indicate, uh, again, a degree of uh, fragility of the Russian forces, although it's very difficult, uh, having been in a few fights where the, the fight is quite, quite uh, fierce, and then all of a sudden the enemy just collapses. Uh, yeah. And you never can tell what that point is. And that's what, again, I think the weeks that lie ahead may uh, expose if Russia's forces are at that point of weakness or if they can steady their forces, harden the defenses along the front lines and then defend what it is that they have seized in the southeast and south. Before you go, I want to ask you as a former CIA director about something extraordinary happening uh, here uh, in Washington, D.C. Congress is holding its first public hearing on UFOs in more than 50 years amid a growing number of acknowledged incidents, the deputy director of naval intelligence says there's still no evidence of things non-terrestrial in origin, but he also said this. What you see here uh, is um, uh, aircraft that is uh, operating in a uh, uh, 
uh, in a U.S. Navy uh, training range uh, that has observed uh, spherical objects uh, in that area. Uh, and as they fly by it, they take a video. You see a, um, it looks uh, reflective in this video, somewhat reflective, uh, and it quickly passes by uh, the cockpit of the, uh, of the aircraft. And is this one of the phenomena that we can't explain? I do not have an explanation for what this, this specific uh, uh, object is. Do, do you have an explanation for, for some of these unexplained phenomena? Well, Jake, we normally try to keep the aliens safe and secure in Area 51, as you probably know, but every now and then they, they do get out. No, come no, on, I, I'm serious. Of course, that's a, joke. that's a joke, please, Jake. No, yeah, look, no. there are, and there yeah. have been unidentified objects and unexplained phenomena, uh, and that's what they are, uh, as the uh, Naval Intelligence Officer uh, indicated. Uh, and, you know, there has been a constant effort uh, to try to find out what it is that they are and to explain uh, what those objects uh, actually are as well. Uh, but never have we been able to really identify something that would indicate, again, the presence of life somewhere else in the universe or, or this kind of activity. It could be a super weapon from some other force on this country and on this planet that we don't know about. It, it could be anything, Jake, uh, until we discover what it really is. All right. General David Petraeus, thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate it. Coming up, just ahead, the deteriorating crisis in Afghanistan, where millions of people are at risk of starving and critical aid groups are struggling to meet demand. We're going to go live to Kabul. Stay with us. In our world lead, the Pentagon Inspector General warning today that ISIS-K, that's the Afghan affiliate of the terrorist group, could have the capability to attack the U.S. homeland within the next 18 months. This comes as our Christiana Mapur reports the humanitarian crisis in the war-torn country deepens under Taliban rule. Under a scorching sun, standing patiently for hours in organized lines, hundreds of newly poor Afghans wait for their monthly handout. Men on one side, women on the other. Here, the UN's World Food Program is delivering cash assistance, the equivalent of $43 per family. Khalid Ahmadzai is the coordinator. He says he's seen the need explode, and right from the start, the stories are dire. A few days ago, one woman came, uh, woman came, to, came to me, and she told me that I want to give you my son by 16,000 Afghani. Just give me the Afghani. And he was, she was really crying. And that was the worst feeling that I had in my life. Are you serious? Yeah, this is a serious thing that we had a distribution at the first day. So the hunger is too much high here. You know, we've heard those stories, but I've never heard it yeah. from somebody who's actually yeah, seen yeah, it. Yeah, I, I have seen it. And it's too much, but it hurts me a lot. Everyone we met is hurting. According to the International Rescue Committee, almost half the population of Afghanistan lives on less than one meal a day. And the UN says nearly nine million people risk famine-like conditions. Khotima is a widow. They should let us work because we have to become the men of the family so we can find bread for the children. None of my six kids have shoes. And with 3,000 Afghanis, what will I be able to do in six months' time? You just won't work. I have to work, she says. At this WFP distribution site in Kabul, you do see women working and women mostly with their faces uncovered. 
Outside, Taliban slogans plastered over the blast walls tout victory over the Americans and claim to be of the people for the people. But while security has improved since they took over, the country is facing economic collapse. And that shows up all over the tiny bodies we see at the Indira Gandhi Children's Hospital. It's the biggest in Afghanistan, now heaving under the extra weight. Dr. Mohammed Yaqub Sharafat tells us that 20 to 30 percent of the babies in this neonatal ward are malnourished. Suddenly, he rushes to the side of one who stopped breathing. Which yes, for five minutes, we watched him pump his heart until he comes back to life. But for how long? Even in the womb, the decks are stacked against them. You know, from one side, uh, the mothers uh, are not getting well nutrition. Wow, so it's a triple whammy. The mothers aren't nourished enough. Yeah. The economy is bad. bad. They have too many children. Children's and they're overworking work. themselves. So all these factors together make this situation is to, to, to give birth premature babies. Because they're under sanctions, the Taliban are struggling to pay salaries. So the International Committee of the Red Cross pays all the doctors and nurses at this hospital and at 32 others across the country. That's about 10,000 health workers in all. Look at this child. He's two and a half years old. His name is Mohammed. He's malnourished. How much food is she able to give her child at home? Why does, why does he look like this? His mother says she's had nothing but breast milk to feed him, but now can't afford enough to eat to keep producing even that. It's the same for Shazia. Her seven-month-old baby has severe pneumonia, but at least she gets fed here at the hospital so that she can breastfeed her daughter. Back home, we don't have this kind of food, unfortunately, she says. If we have food for lunch, we don't have anything for dinner. While we're here, the electricity's gone out. It happens all the time, the director tells us. We watch a doctor carry on by the light of a mobile phone until the electricity comes back. We end this day in the tiniest dwellings amongst the poorest of Kabul's poor. Waliullah and Basmina have six children. He tells us their 10-month-old baby is malnourished. I always worry and stress about this, says Basmina. But she tells her kids, God will be kind to us one day. One day, that has been the story of Afghanistan for 40 years as they wait for something better. Things have rarely been so dire in the last 30-odd years. And with that Pentagon report, you can just imagine if a woman was ready to sell her child for $200, the dire, dire poverty here is fertile ground for recruitment. Jake? It's just so heartbreaking. Cristiano and poor live in Kabul, thank you so much for that important report. Coming up, a former Clinton campaign lawyer on trial accused of trying to manipulate the FBI. We're going to have the latest from the court. Stay with us. In our politics lead, the first trial of a case brought by special counsel John Durham in his more than three-year-long probe has begun. Durham, as you may recall, was appointed by then-Attorney General William Barr during the Trump administration in order to investigate the origins and the Justice Department's handling of the Trump-Russia investigation. 
The defendant in this case, Michael Sussman, is a former lawyer for Hillary Clinton's 2016 campaign. He's charged with lying to the FBI. CNN's Paula Reed is covering the trial. Today, prosecutors laid out their case against Michael Sussman, a former lawyer for Hillary Clinton's 2016 presidential campaign, on trial for a single charge of lying to the FBI. Mr. Sussman, did you lie to the FBI? In her opening argument, Prosecutor Britton Shaw painted Sussman as a high-powered D.C. lawyer who lied to direct the power and resources of the FBI to his own ends and to serve the agenda of his clients. The trial is the first, resulting from special counsel John Durham's three-year investigation into the origins of the FBI's Trump-Russia probe, the case shining a spotlight on opposition research in politics. It's part of what happens uh, in a campaign where you get information that may or may not be useful and you try to make sure anything you put out into the public arena is accurate. Durham's team has portrayed Sussman's actions as part of a dirty smear campaign to use oppo research to prompt an FBI investigation and then use the press coverage against Trump. Special counsel Robert Mueller spent two years investigating the Trump campaign's ties to Russia, and while multiple Trump associates were convicted of lying and other crimes, no one was ever charged with conspiracy. Former Attorney General Bill Barr appointed Durham in 2019 to examine what he said was an unfair investigation. I'm confident he's going to get to the bottom of things. Trump has long railed against the FBI's Russia probe. It's a total witch hunt. I've been saying it for a long time. And praised Durham. One of the most important investigations in the history of our country. Durham has not alleged that Clinton or her campaign broke any laws. He has alleged that Sussman, a well-known lawyer for Democrats and the Clinton campaign, lied to FBI General Counsel James Baker in September 2016 when he shared information about a possible computer server connection between the Trump Organization and Russia-based Alpha Bank. Durham says that Sussman told Baker he wasn't working on behalf of any client, when in fact he was representing the Clinton campaign as well as a tech client. In opening statements, Sussman's lawyer today argued that the case against him is an injustice and vehemently denied that he was part of any scheme to deceive the FBI. Defense attorney Michael Bosworth told jurors that Sussman did not want to get information to the press, but wanted to alert the FBI about potential news coverage. He also said it's nonsensical that Sussman was trying to conceal his ties to the Clinton campaign, his partisan affiliations. They were out and about, loud and clear, for everyone to see. The FBI eventually looked into the tip and couldn't find any illegal cyberlinks. The judges tried to tamp down the political overtones of this case, telling the jury, we're not here to relitigate the 2016 election. But lawyers will be delving into some of the most highly charged issues of that election cycle, especially the role of the FBI as it carried out two very different investigations into each of the candidates. Now, the trial is expected to last about two weeks. Jake? All right, Paula Reed, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Coming up, a warning from Donald Trump about a candidate who's arguably quite a bit like Donald Trump. Plus, a top candidate for the U.S. Senate will undergo surgery just as voters are casting their ballots. Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, President Biden's blunt warning. The president saying the hate and fear that has been allowed to fester in the United States is now threatening America's democracy as he made an emotional visit to Buffalo to meet with the families who lost loved ones in that racist massacre over the weekend. Plus, 
The truth is out there, and lawmakers want to get to the bottom of it today, holding their first public hearing on UFOs in decades. Why lawmakers warn UFOs pose a potential national security threat. And leading this hour, it is primary day. The first polls are about to close in what is one of the most consequential primary days of the year. In the great Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, we're just learning that the leading Democratic Senate candidate, Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman, is about to get a pacemaker implanted after suffering a stroke last week. CNN's Jessica Dean is now live for us in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, following Fetterman's campaign. Jessica, a lot of health questions for Fetterman in this closing days of this race. How is his campaign dealing with it? Well, I just spoke with his campaign spokesperson just within the last 15 minutes. Jake, he says that uh, Lieutenant Governor Fetterman is still undergoing that procedure. They expect him to be out shortly. Uh, he said that they feel very blessed that they've had an outpouring of support and uh, that they feel like a lot of people have their backs right now. We learned about 3.30 this afternoon Eastern time, so just about 90 minutes ago that this was happening. I'll read you the statement from the campaign at that moment. They said John Fetterman is about to undergo a standard procedure to implant a piece maker with a defibrillator. It should be a short procedure that will help protect his heart and address the underlying cause of his stroke, atrial fibrillation, AFib, by regulating his heart rate and rhythm. And we were in Lancaster yesterday. That's uh, where the lieutenant governor is currently at the hospital. It's about a four-hour drive from Pittsburgh. Uh, I spoke with his wife. She told me he was doing well, but that their priority right now was his health and their family and making sure he he got the treatment that he needed. Uh, separately, I did ask the campaign just a few minutes ago how they were feeling. They said they feel uh, pretty good about tonight in terms of politically uh, how things will be moving forward. But the bottom line is, Jake, uh, Fetterman will not be there in person and likely not even virtually to greet supporters. Instead, it will that will fall to his wife, Giselle, who I'm told is still expected to be here in Pittsburgh to talk to supporters uh, later tonight. Uh, he is the front runner, uh, is expected to w- win this race. But again, polls don't close here for several hours. Uh, Uh, But keeping an eye on the lieutenant governor as he comes out of this procedure, Jake. Yeah, obviously our well wishes are with him. Uh, On the Republican side, there's a lot of hand-wringing over the surprise surge of Senate candidate Kathy Barnett. She has a record of quite controversial comments, discrimination against gay people, bigotry against Muslims. How is her campaign feeling tonight? Well, certainly they feel very good about the surge that they've seen over the last several days, the last several weeks. Uh, just to give you kind of the bird's eye view here, uh, of course, Dr. Mehmet Oz, who is a well-known television doctor who was endorsed by former President Trump, and then Dave McCormick, a former hedge fund CEO, uh, who have also has been, they've both been spending millions of dollars, millions and millions of dollars over the airwaves over the last several months, Jake. And we've seen them just go at each other, both over the airwaves, but also uh, in their campaign and stops and stump speeches. Uh, And as that happened, Kathy Barnett really just creeped up and now she is surging right at the right time uh, during this Republican primary. Uh, So it will be interesting to see how that all plays out and who will ultimately emerge victorious Um, here in Pennsylvania. It's whoever wins the most votes. There's not a 50.1 rule. So we will will certainly uh, see how that all plays out tonight, Jake. All right, former Pennsylvanian Jessica Dean Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Turning to another big story this election day, the fate of scandal-prone Republican Congressman Madison Cawthorn. CNN's Diane Gallagher is live for us in Hendersonville, North Carolina, outside Cawthorn campaign headquarters. Diane, a lot of Republicans in North Carolina and on Capitol Hill would be happy to see Cawthorn lose his primary tonight. But unlike in Pennsylvania, all he needs tonight to avoid a runoff is 30 percent of the vote plus one. 
Yeah, that's right. And so it's not enough just to be the top vote getter. He does have to get that 30 percent plus one. But, Jake, there are seven other Republican candidates running against him. And so experts say that it is possible that just because of the sheer number of candidates and that fractured base here in District 11, Cawthorn could come out even amidst all of the scandals that he has left over the year and a half that he has been in Congress. Uh, that is sort of the factor here. And I spoke with Madison Cawthorn not too long ago today, and he said that he's feeling very confident that he's going to be able to avoid a runoff because if he doesn't get that 30 percent, then it would go to a runoff in late July. He thinks it may all end tonight. But of course, there's a lot of other factors that go into this, you know, not least of which is the candidate's own behavior. That is why Republicans across the state of North Carolina, including U.S. Senator Tom Tillis, have sunk uh, six figures and also their reputations on trying to unseat him. Polls close at 7.30 in North Carolina, Jake. And at that point, we will see if Madison Cawthorn will have some awkward uh, encounters if he, in fact, is still the Republican nominee. All right, Diane Gallagher in North Carolina, thanks so much. Let's discuss all this now with David Urban. He advised Trump's 2020 campaign. He's a CNN political commentator, and he's supporting Dave McCormick in Pennsylvania's Senate primary. We also have with us Keisha Lance Bottoms, the former mayor of Atlanta and a CNN political commentator. David, let me start with you. You've worked on elections in Pennsylvania since 97. (laughs) Republicans could very well nominate gubernatorial and Senate nominees who you fear might be too risky to win in the general election. How, How concerned are you? Jake, so you, you and I have discussed this. Um, you know, Pennsylvania is a purple state generally, right? Um, when, when Donald Trump won in 2016, we won by about 50,000 votes and he lost by about 75,000 votes in the 2020 election. So even in these big races, the, the margins are razor thin. And so I, I, I'm just concerned that the, you know, the, the, the Republican nominees will be too, too hot and, and uh, too conservative for the general electorate. Look, I'm for the most conservative uh, person that can win in the general election. And I, and I think that's Dave McCormick. I think, you know, the, the Republicans across the state are, are, are nervous going into this, uh, going into this election tonight. Mayor Bottoms, uh, let's talk about the Democratic frontrunner, Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman. He is right now undergoing uh, what his campaign calls a, quote, standard procedure to install a pacemaker in his chest. That's a device that will help control his heartbeat following the stroke that he suffered last week. Do you think this is going to have an impact on the election, on voters turning out for him? No, I don't think it will have an impact at all. He is going into this election day with 53%, I believe, is where he is with the polling. Uh, The closest person behind him, I believe, was at around 14%. So I do think that he will win. Um, And I think that Americans understand that pacemakers are very common. It's not common for a 52-year-old man to have a stroke. Uh, But now that we know what the issue is and he is getting a pacemaker. I think that gives that will give comfort to people. And I think it is great that he has been very open about what his health challenges have been. So the people of Pennsylvania don't have to speculate about that. David, let's talk about uh, uh, Dave McCormick, because as a as a fellow Pennsylvanian, I have to say, like, he, he, to me, fits in, generally speaking, into the mode of other Republicans that have won statewide election. And yet he's involved in a race with two candidates who are very unusual for Pennsylvania, uh, Kathy Barnett and Dr. Oz, neither of whom uh, are traditional Pennsylvania Republicans. Um, what's going on here? Why well, is, this, is this such a race? Yeah, Jake, look, I think it's, it's no surprise, right? Donald Trump 
is incredibly popular in the state of Pennsylvania. Um, he, he, his message resonates uh, a, a across the Commonwealth from, from Beaver County to Blair County to, you know, Tioga County, every, everywhere Among goes. Republicans. Among, among, among Republicans, right? Yeah. So, so uh, you know, the, the party has shifted in that direction. I, I think, you know, Dave McCormick still espouses those same traditional, you know, Trump values, just in, in, a, in a different, he's a different messenger. Um, I, I think, Jake, you, you'll see here, uh, I think the, the McCormick campaign is counting on, um, uh, you know, all these undecided, there was a huge amount of undecided votes here, 20% undecided. I think the McCormick campaign is counting on all those undecided votes to break in their favor. I think you have a lot of people going to the polls right now in the next few hours. And I, I think when they have to go in there and pull, pull, the, pull the lever, I think they're going to kind of gravitate back towards where they are you know, normally, kind of in the middle of, uh, of the road in Pennsylvania. I think that yeah. McCormick will, will, will pull it out here at the end. We'll see. Mayor Bottoms, um, when Fetterman's opponent, Congressman Connor Lamb, uh, won his, the primary opponent, won the special election in 2018 in that Pittsburgh area House seat, Democrats thought they had a star in their ranks, but it looks as though Pennsylvania Democrats today are going to go with the more progressive campaign uh, in Fetterman. Is this a sign, do you think, of the direction the Democratic Party is going? Well, Fetterman um, is a tested candidate. He has served as lieutenant governor. He served as a mayor. And people, I think, really appreciate that he seems to be an authentic candidate. I was looking at his website. I saw one picture of him in a suit. And I think that grittiness really appeals to voters. And, and what we know um, is that people are, are often moving away quite often uh, from traditional candidates. They want someone more relatable, more authentic, and that seems to be what he's offering. Yeah, he was in gym shorts a lot, even in the winter. David Urban, Keisha Lance Bottoms, thank you so much. Appreciate it. We'll see you tonight. Coming up next, Thanks, troubling new details emerging of how the alleged gunman in the supermarket massacre spent months plotting his racist attack. Plus, Russia says hundreds of Ukrainian fighters have surrendered to Putin's forces at that sprawling steel plant in Mariupol. What is Russia saying about their future? International lead President Biden today rejecting the venom of white supremacy after meeting with families devastated by that racist massacre in Buffalo over the weekend. White supremacy is a poison and it's been allowed to fester and grow right in front of our eyes. No more. I mean, no more. We need to say as clearly and forcefully as we can that the ideology of white supremacy has no place in America. None. This comes as we learn the alleged gunman spent months preparing for this attack and detailed all of his plans online. CNN's Shimon Prokopes joins us now from Buffalo. And Shimon, what are investigators learning from these online posts? Well, as the president said in talking about this poison, what, what they have found is that the hundreds of pages of documents and posts made by the alleged shooter, that he was consuming this poison that the president talked about months and months and perhaps as long as a year, maybe even longer a year, studying mass shootings, studying white supremacists. And then he wrote about a lot of it. What they recently found was a social media post where he came here in March, police say, and where he drew maps of the supermarket, where he noted different exits were and the people that were inside the supermarket. In the post on March 9th, he wrote that in hindsight, that was 
a close call. He was talking about the security guard that he encountered who was questioning him about what he was doing inside the supermarket. He also then the next day was back here and wrote that on March 10th that he was going to have to kill the security guard. I hope he doesn't kill me or even hurt me instantly. And of course, we know that the alleged shooter wore body armor, that the security guard tried to stop him, that he fired at him. He fired his weapon at him, but it had no effect because he was wearing the body armor. The mayor here and police officials calling that security guard a hero. But overall, Jake, what investigators have been finding is certainly so disturbing and so troubling because of what the alleged shooter spent so much time reading about that ultimately led him to become radicalized, they say, and then ultimately led to this shooting, Jake. Shimon Prokopes in Buffalo for us. Thank you so much. Joining us now to discuss Anthony Barksdale. He's a CNN law enforcement analyst and the former acting Baltimore police commissioner. Also with us, Phil Mudd, CNN counterterrorism analyst and a former FBI senior intelligence advisor. Commissioner Barksdale, let me start with you. You just heard Shimon laying out new details about the suspected uh, shooter's online post. He wrote about visiting the grocery store in March. He said he thought about attacking an elementary school or a church instead. He documented all of this online. Now, people have said, oh, why couldn't he be stopped? The Secretary of Homeland Security says it's, quote, virtually impossible to monitor all of the threats on social media. Uh, what do you think? I, I think that when you have an individual who is committed to taking uh, action like this and they're self-documenting, they're not hiding, they're putting it out there, I completely disagree something like this could not have been detected earlier. If not by the social media platform, then perhaps law enforcement or maybe his parents, where are the parents at? So I disagree with that. And if you tell yourself it can't be done, then it won't be done. So I, I disagree. We, we could have done better here, in my opinion. Phil, President Biden forcefully calling out uh, individuals on the right who have been pushing the so-called replacement uh, white replacement theory, conspiracy theory, this nonsense of white Americans is a yeah. conspiracy to replace whites with immigrants or minorities. Take a listen to the president. The Internet has radicalized, angry, alienated, lost and isolated individuals into falsely believing that they will be replaced. That's the word replaced. And I condemn those who spread the lie for power, political gain and for profit. How concerned are you about these racist conspiracy theories moving from the fringe to the mainstream? I think I would step back for a moment, Jake, and think not just about white supremacy, but think generally about human beings and validation. 25 years ago, before the Internet, if you want to be a white supremacist, you've got to physically interact with someone who validates you. By validation, that's a term we used to use at the FBI. By validation, that is interacting physically with somebody who says the views you have on black people are appropriate. Let me let me step further back. If you want to abuse a child 25 years ago, you can't interact with somebody on the Internet. You have to have somebody who physically says the abuse of a child is okay. What the president is talking about is appropriate because in the Internet age, whether you're abusing a child or believing that killing a black person is appropriate on the Internet, you can get someone three counties away, three states away in Europe, in Asia to say that what you think is appropriate. Validation is really important because psychologically, somebody like this needs to say it's okay for me to act, Jake. And Commissioner Barksdale, state police say that the suspected shooter 
was investigated last year for using the words murder-suicide on a school project. He wrote about this on social media saying, quote, I got out of it because I stuck with the story that I was getting out of class and I just stupidly wrote that down. That is the reason I believe I am still able to purchase guns. It was not a joke. I wrote that down because that's what I was planning to do. It's interesting that you have him there, this, this killer, recognizing that he was able to evade the state's red flag law just by simply lying. Uh, isn't, I mean, isn't this exactly who these red flag laws are for? It, it is who it's for, the red flag laws. But if they can, if the laws can be defeated, then there's work to be done. But this is the second time. It was the kid in, uh, in Michigan where he, he's drawing on the desk saying, oh, he's going to shoot people. Teacher catches him and he says, oh, no, I'm just, just playing around here. Uh, yesterday, you started the show with an amazing quote by Maya Angelou. And there's another quote that she used that Oprah Winfrey says was one of the greatest that she learned from. When people show you who they are, believe them. They're telling us who they are right now, face. And then even with contact with law enforcement, they're going right on ahead and killing people. And we've got a lot of victims because of not enough being done. So if we need to tighten up these red flag laws, then politicians, please get to work. Law enforcement, please get to work because this can't continue. Yeah. And I know, Phil, you you echo um, what Commissioner Barksdale uh, said uh, earlier about where are the parents? I agree. I, I would I would have a different view on red flag laws. Look, I think they've been powerful tools for law enforcement. I think critical tools. But let me tell you something. If you're expecting state and local police or Silicon Valley 25 years ago to figure out what's in a kid's head and friends and family don't speak up. This kid bought weapons. He altered weapons. He bought and spent money as an 18 year old on a vest. He he checked websites and had a change, a radicalization change over the course of months and years. And you want to expect somebody in state and local police to find it. It's family and it's friends. See something, say something, Jake. Absolutely. Phil Mudd, Commissioner Anthony Barksdale, thanks to both of you. Really appreciate your insights. Coming up next, what Russia is now saying they're going to do to the hundreds of Ukrainians they say surrendered at the Mariupol steel plant. Stay with us. In our world lead tonight, Russia vowing to, quote, interrogate the Ukrainian soldiers evacuated from the Azovstal steel plant in Mariupol, calling them, quote, surrendered militants. About 600 soldiers tried to defend the plant. They laid down their weapons after the weeks-long siege ended. Most who were then taken on buses to the Russian-backed separatist region of Donetsk. This is CNN gets an exclusive, up-close look at what may be one of the biggest single defeats for the Russian military in Ukraine, Sam Kiley has more from the front lines. The first signs of a Russian disaster, a Z-marked Russian tank being salvaged by Ukrainian troops. A few days ago, this was the scene on the edge of these woods, Russian pontoon bridges under ferocious Ukrainian artillery attack. The Ukrainian commander with us casts an eye to the sky looking for Russian drones. This is no place for complacency. Ukraine and NATO have claimed that Russia suffered badly here. They estimate 70 to 80 vehicles destroyed and a whole Russian battle group of a thousand men mauled. So we're at the edge now of the area where the Russian armour was caught after it had crossed the pontoon river. You can see down here there's a destroyed tank next to it, an armoured personnel carrier and if we look down the road here we've got 
another armored personnel carrier, and another, and another. The Ukrainians were able, they say, due to their superior reconnaissance and intelligence to work out where the Russians were going to cross and then bring in devastating levels of artillery. And this is the result. This is only the edge of it. Russia has now shifted its attacks elsewhere, at least for now. When you see this, how do you feel? Super. Great. I understand that our artillery is working, and our troops are working too, because there was both artillery and ground fighting. The units, in cooperation with other troops, were pushing the enemy across the river on foot. Shattered Russian armor is scattered along this path through the woodland. On the ground, we can't move forward. The track is mined. A real disaster for the Russians, but something that the Ukrainians now are saying here that means that the pressure is off this particular front for now and that they believe that the Russians are focusing more of their efforts elsewhere. Ukrainian soldiers pick over the debris of this victory, but the chilling truth is that many of their comrades have ended up like this. And while this is a success in the grinding war for Ukraine, Russia remains an immediate threat. And they've asked us to get out of here with their military commander because the, uh, they're worried that our cars are going to attract attention and therefore attract incoming. This is still clearly an extremely active area. And one, as it was for the Russians, that's a considerable relief to leave. Now, Jake, uh, we mentioned there that uh, the Ukrainians believed that there was extra pressure being brought to bear by the Russians elsewhere, about uh, 10, kilo 10 miles to the east uh, in the town of Bakhmut. That's exactly what happened. There was a pretty ferocious tank, tank battle on the outskirts uh, of that city. At least one person was killed in some kind of missile strike in the central part of the city and a factory was set ablaze. And that is because the Russians have been trying to punch through these Ukrainian defensive lines now for weeks, so far without success, Jake. Sam Kiley reporting from Kramatorsk, Ukraine. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Joining us live to discuss Ian Bremmer. He's the president of the Eurasia Group and author of a new book called The Power of Crisis, How Three Threats and Our Response Will Change the World. Ian, thanks for joining us. So Vladimir Putin undoubtedly sees today's apparent surrender in Mariupol is a huge victory for Russia. But as our last report just showed, there have also been major setbacks for Russia. Putin's forces are behind schedule. They're being pushed back in the Kharkiv region by the Ukrainians. Finland and Sweden are both racing toward NATO membership. Um, do you think there is any part of Putin that regrets what he's done? Yes, I do. Um, and, and I know that when he's spoken to European leaders uh, recently, he has said that mistakes have been made on all sides including Russia. And it's the first time I've heard that, frankly. So, I mean, look, he's getting the news. He certainly understands how many Russians are getting killed in the field. Lord knows he knows that this war is not going the way he intended the special military operation, as he calls it, to go. Even President Lukashenko, one of his very few allies on the global stage, uh, admitted last week uh, to his people that it's taken a lot longer. It hasn't been great. It's true that Mariupol is important in the sense that it allows the Russians not only to mop up that town of 400,000 and move, redeploy those troops elsewhere, it also gives them that land bridge between the Donbass and Crimea. The fear, of course, is that they're going to start actually annexing territory that they didn't hold before February 24th. And that, of course, makes the prospects of any frozen conflict or negotiations a very, very distant prospect indeed. 
Let's talk about your book. Uh, you write about the threat of the next global pandemic. The COVID pandemic is hitting North Korea for the first time that we know of. Here's how Human Rights Watch explained it. Quote, North Koreans have had almost no access to the COVID vaccine, and many are chronically malnourished, leaving them with compromised immune systems. Medicines of any kind are scarce in the country. The healthcare infrastructure is extremely fragile, lacking medical supplies such as oxygen and other COVID therapeutics. How bad do you think it's going to get in North Korea? And, and do you think that Kim Jong-un ultimately will allow outside help? Jake, it's like they've refused the Chinese vaccine. They don't think it's any good. The Chinese have refused to license the American, the European vaccines. It's like it's turtles all the way down. This is a global uh, virus. It's uh, COVID is, it hits every country around the world. And it's very obvious that the absence of international cooperation as well as the absence of cooperation inside the United States, has made it a lot more expensive, a lot more painful uh, for the world to effectively respond to. It's, it's, it's really sort of debilitating uh, to watch uh, that governments around the world just absolutely refuse to get out of their own way um, to follow the science on this issue. And in North Korea, I mean, given the fact that they literally have no vaccines available, I think they're the only country other than Eritrea where that's true, and they also clearly don't have the healthcare capacity. This is going to be very ugly for them. And yeah. what worries me is usually when they have that kind of a problem, they distract. And usually a distraction is another missile test, maybe a nuclear test. I'd be more worried about that in the coming weeks than I have been at any point in the past year, frankly. You write that one of the emerging global threats is disruptive technology. You're talking about artificial intelligence or cyber weapons, sophisticated algorithms and on and on. As you know, billionaire Elon Musk is making a, a tumultuous on-again, off-again bid to take over Twitter. Do you think it matters who runs Twitter? Can the CEO ultimately be more disruptive than the social media product? Look, uh, it's very clear uh, that we have a lot of technologies that affect both the anxiety level of human beings, the disinformation, um, whether or not economies work and cyber weapons, and, and even you know, sort of how our political system functions. In the case of Twitter, the person that runs Twitter, I mean, they decided not because of a regulatory authority, but they decided to remove the sitting president of the United States from that platform. And Elon Musk has made very clear that if he just, if he ends up owning it, if he buys it, it doesn't look very likely at this point, um, that he would replatform President Trump. So simply for that reason, I mean, this is a much more important decision in response to January 6th than anything the United States Congress or the Supreme Court has possibly done. I think that's a pretty big deal. Eurasia Group president and author of the new book, The Power of Crisis, Ian Bremmer. Thanks so much for joining us today. Best of luck with your book. Coming up next, as Republican candidates continue to push lies about the 2020 election, there is growing concern that Trump supporters will try to overturn future elections, but they might be able to pull it off next time. Stay with us. In our politics lead, the first polls closing on this election night in less than an hour. On the ballots in all five states are Republican candidates who have openly embraced election lies. As CNN's Pamela Brown reports, there is real concern that Trump supporters will try to overturn future elections. And next time, they might be able to pull it off. was the 2020 Trump team plan spelled out in the open just weeks before the January 6th insurrection. As we speak today, an alternate slate of electors in the contested states is going to vote and we're going to send those results up to Congress. But that failed plan to find alternate electors and challenge certifying Biden's win 
could have a better shot at working in 2024. Reporting to appoint and ascertain electors. That's the warning from retired conservative judge J. Michael Ludick, who famously advised former Vice President Pence to ignore Trump's overtures, follow the Constitution, and faithfully count the Electoral College votes as they have been cast. Now he's once again trying to ensure it doesn't happen. The former president has been telling this to the world for a year and a half, and most recently, the legislatures in the states, you know, that they're populating themselves with, with Trump supporters in order that they can exploit the Electoral Count Act. Ludig warned there's a blueprint for how he says members of his own party plan to execute successfully in 2024, the very same plan they failed in executing in 2020, and to overturn the 2024 election if Trump or his anointed successor loses again. The GOP could have more favorable state governments. The majority of state legislatures are Republican. The key battleground states of Pennsylvania, Georgia, Michigan, Wisconsin, North Carolina, and Arizona all have Republican legislatures. If they're able to put forward alternate slates of electors that they can actually get state um, officials to sign off on, that might give them more credibility. Um, certainly, um, they might have a little more success there, either in Arizona or other states. In addition, the now conservative supermajority Supreme Court could support an obscure and not widely accepted legal theory where state legislatures have supreme power over elections without checks and balances. That theory stems from Article 1, Section 4 of the Constitution, which says the times, places, and manner of holding elections for senators and representatives shall be prescribed by the legislature there Those that are promoting the independent legislature doctrine are suggesting that that means just the legislature. It's a strict reading. It just says legislature. It means just the legislature. What they're failing to recognize is that every state has a constitution that defines what its legislature does and does not make the legislature predominant over other aspects of government, including the executive and the judiciary. Supreme Court observers believe some justices hinted they'd accept that theory in response to challenges to the 2020 election. At the same time, state legislatures across the country are passing laws to overhaul the election process. According to the left-leaning Brennan Center for Justice, 19 states passed new restrictive voting laws last year alone, like Florida restricting ballot boxes and Iowa proposing strict punishments for election workers who make errors. And over 250 more bills are being considered as of mid-January. We're getting legislation that is basically making nonpartisan election offices, they're being politicized. And that is making it harder for us to do our jobs. Many conservatives say the bills are not about voter suppression, but rather just reflect policy differences between the parties, and in some cases, make voting easier. They're essentially policy choices as to how many ballot boxes you're going to allow. I think the whole concern that there is a, a fundamental restrictions on franchise are are silly. In Texas, new election rules passed in 2021 limit voting hours and makes it harder to vote by mail. The Texas Secretary of State says more than 24,000 voters had their ballots rejected in the March primary, a big jump over previous elections. Republican Texas lawmaker Travis Clardy talked to CNN just before the bill passed last year. It's been 10 years since we've done a kind of an overhaul of our election laws, uh, and I think it, is, it was very much time to do this. 
At the same time, many pro-Trump Republican candidates are top contenders to take control of election oversight as Secretary of State. And they're all running on the same campaign message, the lie that the 2020 election was stolen. We know it, and they know it. Donald Trump won. Arizona's ballot-by-mail system works. Democrat Katie Hobbs is Arizona's Secretary of State and is now running for governor. She worries what will happen in future elections. It is so concerning to see the number of election deniers uh, running for not just secretaries of state across the country, but uh, attorneys general, governors, and even down to state legis legislatures. Uh, it is not an accident. Uh, we know part of why democracy prevailed in 2020 is that there is checks and balances on the system. And one key step election experts say would help protect the rightful winner of future elections is making changes to the Electoral Count Act. That's a federal law from 1887 that is very convoluted, could be easily abused. And Jake, Republicans and Democrats on Capitol Hill say they're looking at ways to amend it, such as making it clear states cannot send an alternate slate of electors if, if it's different from the candidate with the most votes. Yeah, they might want to hop to it on that bill. Pamela Brown, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Coming up, paging agents Scully and Mulder, U.S. lawmakers pondering a different kind of national security threat, the kind from, perhaps from another world. In our out-of-this-world lead, key lawmakers today warning that unidentified aerial phenomena, popularly known as UFOs, must be investigated as a potential threat to national security. Today's hearing the first on UFOs in decades, coming almost a year after a U.S. intelligence report on UFOs provided few answers as to what military pilots have encountered in more than 140 incidents. Joining us now to discuss, uh, Lou Elizondo. He's the former director of the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program, an unpublicized U.S. government program created in 2007, committed to the investigation of UAPs or UFOs. Uh, Lou, thanks for joining us. As part of your job, you had access to the Pentagon's UFO data You've also interviewed military eyewitnesses who encountered UAP, unidentified aerial phenomena, on an almost daily basis. Are lawmakers right to be concerned about this as a threat to national security? Yeah, Jake, great question. Absolutely. Um, I think with all the military eyewitness testimony that's come forward in recent years, along with the videos, we have the telemetry data, we have the radar data, we have the electro-optical data. I think it paints a very convincing picture to, to our members of Congress that this is a national security issue. And what we saw today really is historic. Not in the last 50 years has our Congress been briefed uh, by members of the government on the UFO topic. I want to show you some of the declassified videos the Pentagon shared today. Uh, in this video, you're going to see a small object that appears to zip past a military pilot. Um, here you can see some glowing triangles in the night sky. Um, what do you think we're looking at there? Well, Jake, look, those, that video was taken after I left the Department of Defense, so I really can't comment on that specific video. But I think what, what the problem is here is that we have a, a bit of a schizophrenic approach to this topic. On one hand, we admit that they're real, but on the other hand, we're wrapping them up as an air trash, air clutter issue, i.e. drones, quadcopters, and not for what they should be, which is breakaway technology. Um, this, this history of videos and eyewitness testimony goes back decades. And interestingly enough, I'll make this quick, uh, they acknowledge today the existence of my program, ATIP, and they also acknowledge the existence of the program called Project Blue Book that closed in the 70s. 
but they're not discussing anything that happened in between. And there knows there's no plan to collect data from any government efforts that may have existed between then the seventies and, and my program. And, and I think that's problematic. UFOs uh, first appeared on, on the American public's radar popularly about 70 years ago, maybe the stigma around discussing UFOs have kept many people from taking them seriously. Do you think today's hearing was a, was a turning point? I do, Jake, and I think it's also a step in the right direction, and I think the American people and Congress can expect more hearings. Uh, I think this was mostly pro forma. I think it was to get the, let's not forget, during Blue Book, we had the head of the Air Force come up and testify. Now we have the head of DOD, the intelligence organization, the Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence, now testifying with one of his colleagues. Um, I think what, what Congress is doing is very smart. If you listen to the questions that were specifically asked by members of Congress, uh, they they know what's going on. They're they're no fools, and they're asking the right questions. And I think they're going to keep asking until they get the answers. All right, Lou Elizondo, we're going to have you back sometime soon to discuss even more. Thanks so much. Always good to have you on. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right my back. pleasure. This Sunday, it's my honor to tell you that uh, I'm going to be anchoring a program. It's very special. A CNN special report called Finally Home. It's our interview with former Marine Trevor Reed, who was recently freed from Russia. I sit down with Trevor Reed and his family for his first exclusive interview since returning to the United States after being held in a Russian prison so unfairly for more than two years. I'm also going to talk to the families and loved ones of other Americans being wrongly detained, wrongfully detained around the world. Well, Trevor Reed wants us to bring attention to their stories, too. This airs Sunday at 8 p.m. Eastern, only on CNN. I will see you back here for our special election coverage in just one hour. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 